welcome to Life Camera Action, a lifestyle podcast for filmmakers, writers, and other creatives. I'm your host, Victoria Rook, filmmaker and brand architect. And over the last several years, I've been helping creative entrepreneurs discover their brand voice, design their brand experience, and develop the ultimate creative lifestyle that allows them to live into their passions. Life Camera Action is all about empowering you with best business practices, industry tips, and creative mindsets so that you can accelerate your success in your craft. Today is a season finale for Life Camera Action Season 2. To wrap us up, my guest Harriet and I will be talking about how she takes designs and brings costumes to life for both theater and film. Harriet Dyson is a professional costume, prop, and puppet maker based in the UK. When she's not working on set or backstage, she co-runs The Wardrobe Chronicles, an online space to educate and encourage creatives aspiring or currently working within the costuming industry. In her almost decade-long career, she has worked on everything from regional theater to Disney's Aladdin, released in 2019, and The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, currently streaming on Netflix. So if you want a life filled with success, creativity, and larger-than-life costumes, then stay tuned. to be talking to you about what you do. Um, And from our previous conversations, I've been trying to find someone who can describe what it's like to bring a costume to life and, and, you know, kind of give us a little bit of an insight onto what happens when, you know, some, there's a script or a screenwriter that's writing something in the script and they're developing a character and, you know, they're initiating a little bit of what that character looks like you know what do they wear what do they do and then how we end up as a a viewer of a film or um, a play we're getting to see that being brought to life and and on the character and so I'd love to hear a little bit about that process today and um, what that entails and all of that but first how did you get into this this is something that you always knew that you wanted to do that you wanted to you know play with these fabrics and and materials to bring costumes to life? Or was it something that you kind of happened to stumble into? Tell me like what that moment was like. Um, I don't remember like the specific moment where I was like, hey, I want to do costume. But I definitely remember when I was at college, so I was like 15, 16, I remember going up to our careers counselor and being like, hey, I think I want to do costume and make costumes. And she was like, I think you mean fashion. I don't think costume's a job. I remember being like, oh, have I really misread this? That's really so I don't like it was really weird like they just never heard of it as a thing but like I come from I was at a very academic college like they were very like pushing towards like Ivy League universities and like very academic things and no one from there went into the arts really there was me and one other girl from my college that I know of that both went into do theatre so yeah they had no idea what we wanted to do so I just kind of like fell into it myself I spent a lot of time like googling and hoping that someone else had the answer uh, and then I ended up doing it at university. So I actually got a place as a costume construction student oh, at wow. the, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama down in London. So I oh, did a three-year cool. degree there and that's how I got into it. Got it. Got it. That's cool. So um, is there a difference between the way you construct costumes for um, film and TV versus live performing theater? There are quite a few distinctions. Uh, like... 
so like the the basic idea is the same you want a costume that fits someone and that can be worn but the difference is that if you do this for theater it needs to last for forever you know a theater show could be oh. done eight shows a week for 10 years so it's got to be really strong so you want to machine sew it you want to make sure that everything is interchangeable obviously actors change shape you know they might get pregnant they might put on weight they might lose weight so everything needs to be very easy to open up the seams add extra bits in, take bits out of it and we work from there whereas film you honestly I've made things that spent weeks and weeks making them and they were used for 20 minutes on a day of filming and that was it (laughs) they will never be worn again yeah so for those things like you know they want to be a lot better close up Obviously, if you're like in a theatre audience, you're never going to see anyone from less than like 10 metres away. Whereas TV and film, they might zoom right in on one tiny scene. So everything has to be perfect. But the actor is not going to put on or lose weight in the half a day that it gets used for filming. And if it did fall apart, which would be awful, but if something went wrong, it got ripped, anything like that, you can pause the filming, fix the costume and go back in and do it again. Whereas in theatre, if it breaks while they're on stage, there's nothing you can do. They just have to act until they can get off stage. And I have definitely been backstage in a theatre where someone's ripped their costume and been like, I need to be back on stage in three minutes. And I've been getting like gaffer tape and safety pins and just sticking them back in. Like, I'll fix it in the interval. Get back on the stage. Oh, my gosh. So there are differences. So it is working backstage can be really intense. Yeah, I've never thought about that. Um where where yeah theater costumes they do there's a longer running time for them so they will have to last a lot longer it never even occurred to me absolutely and sometimes we use the same uh, costumes for different cast changes so you know we'll make a costume and it'll be for this slim five foot seven woman and then the next person in will be five foot three and quite a bit bigger and you'll be like right then shorten it make it wider Mm -hmm. make it works theater budgets you can work on things that have huge budgets but quite often they don't And it's just a case of chop and change and make it work for the new person and see what you can get away with, really. Yeah. What is your process like when, you know, you receive a design and you're you're looking at bringing it to life and constructing it? What does your process look like with that? Do you get to take some creative liberties and choose some fabrics of your own? Is it more dictated by the design? Um, Where do you get to play and use your imagination in there? It completely depends on the designer. Some designers this is exactly what I want, this is the picture I want, here is the fabric to use, and they have creative control over everything. Whereas some designers say, it needs to look kind of like this, but I don't really mind what the back looks like. Or, you know, I do a lot of mascot costumes, you know, like sports things, stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. So it's really fun. But like sometimes they'll send me a design where the feet are huge because they're meant (laughs) to look like, you know, like big penguin feet. Yeah. And I have to turn around and be like, I understand why you want it to look this way, but that would be like walking in flippers. You can't have someone do this on a stage. They'll fall off. Yeah. So for things like that, I get a lot more creative control and particularly designers who I've worked with before when I know what they want and when they trust me to work on things, they're quite often a lot calmer and a lot more accepting of letting me have some creative process there. So they'll say it needs to have a 1920s silhouette and I want the fabric to be purple. But apart from that, have some fun with it. You know, here's some budget for some lace. Let me know what you're thinking. But like I said, some some designers are, this is how it should be done. And I will watch you every step of the way and it must be to my vision. So it's very dependent on the designer, but the designer is my boss. So it's it. I let them 
give me as much control as they want. And I work from there. So when you're, especially when you're working with um, costumes that are more for, you know, period pieces, there's going to be some like continuity on, on when things were actually invented and what style was actually being utilized at that time. And to make sure things are historically accurate, is that up to you um, as someone who's constructing it or is it up to the original designer? Like, do they end up just putting down what they want and then you, you have to kind of reference to make sure like, "Mm, actually they wouldn't have used this at that time. Or is that kind of done for you? And then you get to be more of just kind of a double checker on that. Again, it depends on the person. It should, I think, be the designer that really decides on that. Because no matter how historically accurate you want something to be, really, it's always going to be influenced by the time period. Yeah. You can look at, I went to an amazing um, seminar recently, and she showed two different versions of The Great Gatsby. And she said, both of these are theoretically period accurate, but you can tell which one was made in the 70s and which one was made in 2010. They're always going to be influenced by the time period. And, you know, you want it to work for a modern audience. So they, the designer should decide how historical they want it. So, yeah, it's, it's very dependent on what they want. And, you know, sometimes you might turn around and say, look, you can't get this silhouette without a corset. So you're going to have to put a corset in or you're going to have to change your design. So it's good as a maker to have an idea of that, to understand period costume and to know what the overall aim is. But it's completely up to the designer how specific they want to be with that. Mm-hmm. So you end up doing a lot of um, you're, you're getting to be creative with with bringing everything together um, and, and putting it together. But then there's also it sounds like a lot of um, that logical analytical side, obviously when you're, when you're constructing something, there's going to be some geometry type of things involved, but, but you actually have to look at um, logistics, I guess is the word that I'm looking for. There's a, there's a very logistical side to it that, that you actually end up utilizing. Absolutely. It's so many people just say that I'm a problem solver. I have friends who are like, I have this weird costume and I know what I want, but I don't think it will work. And so I have to turn around and be like, okay, practically, where can we hide an opening? How can we make this bit work? That's so cool. Um, I had a dolphin costume that I had to make for a TV <laughs> show called um, called Death on the Time. Uh-huh. Really weird Channel 4 comedy. Very good. Um, and the designer uh, was like, yes, he needs to have flippers, but he also needs to be able to hold a baseball bat and try and hit someone with it. I was like, right then, how are we going to manage to hold a baseball bat when you don't have opposable thumbs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So like I designed, like I put an extra like split into the sleeve so like you could get your hands out and then hit people with something and then put your hands back in again. But things like that, she she didn't know the practicality. She was like, mm. I want this. I want this look and it needs to be able to do this. And then anything in between was completely up to me how I wanted yeah. to, to do that and get away with that. Wow. Just as much work as you're doing of making something look pretty and making it a reality off of a design, you're actually doing just as much work, making sure that it actually works and that there's a practical sense to how the movement is going to be and, you know, how the costume is, is going to be utilized in a sense of, yeah, like, does there need to be um, a slit here for that? And, you know, where the mic cord's going to run through and. Oh, definitely. Hiding mic packs is such a pain. I swear. So much of my job is like, where can we hide a mic pack and stick a microphone in this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be able to easily to have to change out batteries and stuff. <laughs> it's just like, that's a, that's a big um, task in and of itself. I think, do you end up um, finding yourself analyzing with whether it's film or TV or theater productions that you go to, do you end up analyzing 
the costumes that are in front of you where you're like, Oh, I would have done this a little bit differently or, or something like that. Like, do you end up feeling that burden of like, I know how this works. And so now this is all I can see. Oh my God. All the time. I swear (laughs) you ruined theater for me. So then I worked to work in TV and now it's ruined TV and film for me. Like every time I'm just going, Oh, that's how they did that. Oh, I can see a zip there. And then like, Oh, that's now funny. I do continuity on film as well so I'll be there oh my like, gosh. watching every take and then I have to like make sure all the costumes are the same yes yeah, so you've got a good eye then oh my gosh it's like playing spot the difference apart from it's over a whole day and they stop and change and then three days later they go you remember that scene we did you know last week did they have their jacket open or closed and you're like oh goodness what was it <laughs> Um, so yeah so I do all of that but that means that then when I'm watching a film and I see the edit get put together like oh that strap wasn't there a second ago oh that's a slightly different tie actually and then I go I wonder if it was the costume person's fault I wonder if it's the editor's fault because they maybe edited it wrong and then all of a sudden I missed half the film (laughs) (laughs) I love doing that though I'm I'm notorious for when we're doing you know when my husband and I are watching movies or my family and I and we're all together watching something and I am annoyingly pointing out like, oh, did you see that glass of orange juice? It was a lot fuller <laughs> in the last scene. <laughs> I, I do that exact same thing um, as far as the noticing those little difference. I, I enjoy it. I think it's a fun game, but at the same time, um, I, I don't do that as a profession. So I, so for me, it gets to be a game. It doesn't have to be so like, uh, so, so important and dire to the, the project success. Oh, we used to, I used to live with uh, another costume girl and our third housemate put a swear jar in the room. Apart from the swear <laughs> jar, it was a pointing out continuity errors jar. Oh, She'd be like, put a pound in the jar. What have mm. you done? And we'd be like, we're sorry, we shouldn't have pointed that out. <laughs> like, you can't help it, though. Oh, my God. You just, honestly, you're watching for it. Yeah, you don't realize at all. It's awful. But I never used to notice these things. I used to just sit and enjoy a film. Not anymore. <laughs> What was it like doing the costuming for what what I'm really interested in is is Aladdin? I was so lucky getting the Aladdin job. The Aladdin job was like my first proper film. I did a few weeks on something else the week before, but um I took on I took on a job a few months before that making dinosaurs uh, and was helping out with that. And then the girl who I met on the dinosaur job was on Dumbo and they were looking for people to just fill in for a week so she rung me and got me in and then the person I shared a desk with on Dumbo went on to Aladdin and then gave my number over and was like we're looking for trainees do you want to come join so it was such a weird chain of events that got me in there I felt so lucky it's cool like from going from small scale theater and not making much money to suddenly wandering around Pinewood Studios like I belonged was such a like weird messing with my head thing it was great that is so cool. What did that job entail? So I was doing, I was trainee for prop costume. So the prop costume department in general were working on mostly all of the headpieces. So all the turbans, all the helmets, um, like all that kind of thing. So anything you see that's headwear in that film really was made by the prop costume department. So I was only a trainee. So I was mostly cutting out fabric for other people to do the things with. Like, I'm I'm not saying that I made anything you saw, but I probably worked on a lot of the things you saw on the film. So that's still, that's amazing. It was really interesting. No, that's amazing. I mean, even, even those things where 
I, I don't know. I think you're being too humble. That's still a really incredible role to have. And I know so many people would, would just like die to be on the set like that, you know? And so, so, so honor yourself with that. That's, that's incredible. And I love the way that it kind of came to be. It was just kind of, you were, you were open to the opportunity and, and that's really fun. So, so you ended up um, doing a lot of like the prep work for the fabric to get turned into the actual pieces. Yeah, absolutely. So they'd be like, right, we're making a hundred turbans. And for that, we need all of these pieces of fabric cutting that are all specifically this size. And I'd be like, right then, get me a big table and a tape measure. I can do this. (laughs) Yeah. And so this was for, was this for the newest Aladdin film? Yes. Yeah. The Disney one with Will Smith in. Wow. That is so cool. Did you get to see anybody um, from set, like actors or anything? Did they get to work with you at all? Uh, so in that job role, not really. But then when that job was sort of finishing up as a trainee, they were mm-hmm. looking for people to work on set as a costume standby. And they were looking for lots of people. And it was another job I hadn't really done before. Um, but I was like, yeah, sure. I've worked backstage in theatre. I'm sure it's basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. It was not. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> so they took me on as a junior to work as a as a standby, really, like a, as a daily um so then at that point I was on set for a lot of the filming any days with any crowd in really I was there so I got to like I saw all the acting happening I saw the different bits of the filming like they built Agrabah in a back lot at the studio so I got to walk around Agrabah which was very cool I felt like such a kid (laughs) that that is seriously so cool so what does a costume standby do are you just monitoring um to make sure that costumes aren't ripping and if if you if they do you're right there to fix them is it more of that continuity job what was the because you were saying you kind of had an expectation for what the role would be like and then it was not what you thought you know working in backstage in the theater so what was the difference well for a standby job in general you're mostly there for continuity you're there to make sure your actor gets into the right costume at the beginning of the day uh if they change through the day because of course you don't film things in a chronological order you film them with which actors you've gotten in the day or what mm-hmm. location you're at. So I, I did a job yesterday. We were filming in a gym and we did four different story days in one, in one like actual real day. Yeah. So every time that they're like, right, okay, we're doing story day three. Now you have to go through your notes, find what everyone was wearing story day three, make sure that they're all in that costume and they're wearing it correctly. So a lot of it is that, but for things like a big film, like Aladdin, where you have, your standbys who are for your principal cast and you have your standbys who are for crowd and it's they're different departments and principal cast is much more of a step up than crowd you start in crowd and then you will quite often move up to that or people stay in crowd if they like it I much prefer doing crowd personally but for that to be honest it was more just making sure everyone got dressed we had 200 extras in a day who all had like full costumes we had some people in full armor so much of that job was just two hours at the beginning of the day and an hour at the end of the day, just getting everybody into those costumes, getting everybody out of those costumes. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the day, you know, the, you might have 20 people doing the job I was doing. And really, oh, wow. we can't have 20 people standing there watching the monitors and checking. So a lot of it was doing, you know, other background jobs, making sure maintenance of the costumes were done, making sure that the rooms were clear. It's like for things like that, it's a lot of it's not quite as interesting in some ways it's interesting a lot but I think for smaller jobs you get to do more actual standby work and actually sort of have more um like more reason to be there and more control over the situation 
whereas in theatre your job is just to make sure that everyone is wearing something and do the quick changes so it's a lot faster paced but obviously in theatre you do the same show every day so once you've got used to that fast there's pace a rhythm and you know what you're doing yeah you just you do the same thing every day and you make sure everyone works and then yeah if a costume breaks you do it quickly and there's it's a similar job role and I really do think if you've done one you can do the other I think it's totally possible to do both but there are differences in how that is done and at different points in the day it's very fast-paced or slow-paced got it one of the things that I've liked so so my filmmaking background started with business stuff so filming commercials e-courses um, promo videos things like that and so it was nice because there you could stay very chronological to the scenes in the sense that you didn't hop around as much and with more of like narrative uh, and more like that scripted style, it you you can just be hopping all around and trying to keep that continuity up and trying to make sure like everything, you know, like even with girls, just like, okay, what side was your hair on? Like, where was your part? And that stuff can just be so tedious and overwhelming. I I can't imagine. Like that is one of my least favorite parts of, of filmmaking is having, having to monitor all that because you're, especially if you do have an eye for it, I think it's, even that much more overwhelming because you can think of all the options of what could have gone wrong. Whereas if, if you don't really think about it, it can be a little bit simpler, but someone who knows all the things that can occur, like the list will just start sparking in your head of like, Oh, what, 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 what was she wearing here? And like, what did they do that? And it, like, that's a lot. It is. It's so much. I think when you get used to it, you start, dressing people to make your life easier so when I do crowd days on tv shows what will happen is the designer will give me a brief and be like you've got 20 people coming in who all have to be walking around outside outside a shopping center go dress them and then give me a lineup at the end and I will decide whether I like the costumes you've done but that gives me a lot of creative control to say well maybe you shouldn't wear that scarf because it will flap around and that will be really difficult or don't wear those dangly earrings because they're going to get caught on this. So I can at that point start making my job a little bit easier by trying to minimize things. Or if someone's got a tie on that I know is going to blow around in the wind, I can tape that down first thing. So I know that's going to stay there. So I think you start to preempt what's going to be a problem and you start sort of working around that. So that sort yeah. of work smart, not hard thing of been like, how can I make my day easier today? Because I have 20 people to look after and I cannot be resetting everyone every take. Yeah, that's a that's a really great tip, though, is, you know, when you are knowing what the characters need to kind of look like, you can then shape the rest of what they're actually wearing based off of what's going to be more easily managed. So you look for scarves, earrings. What What else do you typically look for? knee-high socks always fall down every time no matter how much your actor says no they don't they're fine always good point um shoelaces coming undone is a problem always double lace always double tie the shoelaces um coats flapping around I always try and make sure the coats are buttoned up if I can just so they're not all over the place yeah it doesn't always work obviously a designer might like it open or they might Mm -hmm. like a big flappy scarf on them or you know, there's a hundred things that can still happen, but things like that. If there's any big chunky necklaces, I try not to have them because they tend to shine on camera. Mm-hmm. So I try and just get rid of those at the start and then I don't have to be worrying about trying to like dull them down or keep them out of the light. Um, watches is always a big thing. I was just about to ask about that. I was watching a show last night with my husband and um, I have never noticed watches so much in my life. Like they just kept catching. It was um, 
a first season of, of a of a TV series. And so, you know, typically that's where a lot of the kinks get worked out, you know, in, in that first season anyway. But their watches just kept catching the lights in the studio and it was driving me crazy. I'm like, there's got to be some sort of like film that you can put over it to make it more matte or something to not catch it. But I've never noticed wristwatches so much in my life. So what what's your experience with that? Oh, it's annoying, isn't it? And yeah, once you see it, you can't right. stop seeing it then. So it's such a pain. Yeah. Like, I'm really lucky because for background actors, they don't need a watch on. So I can be like, just take your watch off. That will make my life so much simpler. Um, but I think there are like films and stuff you can put over watches and things. But when you're lighting a main actor, they think about these things. You know, they make sure that they're lit attractively to the actor and, you know, quite often to the costume as well. Whereas for your background actors, they're placed where they're placed and you kind of have to run with it. So I normally get them to take their watches off, but even just the time on the watch, you know, if you see a close-up of someone's watch and it says three in the afternoon when it's meant to be six in the evening, true, it's enough for your brain to go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And if you lose that suspension of disbelief, you're ruined. So, yeah. so many little things like that that I never thought about before. I'm now constantly watching for when I watch TV. I'm like, oh, the time's right on that watch. They did well mm-hmm. there. I'm like, Oh, even when they do it right, I notice. <laughs> yeah, there, there's no relaxing anymore as just a just an audience member for film. <laughs> that, but it, it sounds like you're fantastic at it. Like, I mean, these little tidbits are so fascinating because I that's not the role I have on film sets, and so it's it's cool to hear hear your experience with it. And again, it sounds like you're just great at it, being able to point out all these little things. And these are really great tips too for anyone who's listening who's looking at getting into costuming or continuity. Um, so that, that is really cool. What was your role on dark crystal? My littlest sister who is nine is obsessed with it. Like she watched the the cartoon and she loved it. And, and so now seeing it with, with Netflix, she, she's all about this. Uh, amazing. My sisters hadn't heard of it. I was really annoyed. Like I was really excited because I got this job and I rung my sister and I was like, Oh my God, are you working on dark crystal? And she's like, uh, what? What is that? And I was like, the puppet thing. She's like, what puppet thing? I gave up. I just sent her a link and gave up. <laughs> I'm so scared. I don't know if I can get myself to watch it. It looks terrifying. It is terrifying, right? I was terrified of it when I was younger, which is why I can't, I don't know why my sister doesn't remember it because we definitely watched it together. Yeah. But I'd like, I got myself, I was like, oh, it's just puppets. I'm fine. I'm used to puppets now. And I was like, I was working on it and it was fine. And then they're like, oh, can you go down the corridor and go grab something from the other room? Mm. And down the corridor were all the Skeksis costumes. And they are huge. They're like eight, nine feet tall. They are real life scary. I was just stood yeah, there. Scary. And like the lights in the corridor were going on and off. Like there must have been something wrong oh, with gosh. them. I was like, <laughs> this is how I die. This is That's the, the universe playing a joke <laughs> on you. Yeah, that's really funny. So you, So you were prop and puppet. Uh, puppet. So I was puppet. fabrication assistant was my official title. So I always think of fabrication as being the bit in between costume and prop making. It's a bit too sewing for props and it's a bit to get the drill out on the glue gun for costume. And that is that tends to be that weird niche where a lot of my jobs fall into. So mascot making is fabrication. Puppet things is quite a lot of fabrication. So it's all it was all that kind of thing, which was great. I didn't I made quite a few of the bodies for the Gelflings, which was quite cool. But everything, you know, everything's to other people's patterns. And there was, again, a whole team of people. But I got to work on lots of little bits of different things. So it was very cool getting to see my work on screen on something that I've loved since being a kid myself. Yeah, that's true. That's like, that is, that's a dream come true. It was so good. I got the phone call. I was working at 
another company who I work for quite a lot, this prop costume company in East London, who are great. And I was working with them and I got this phone call and I was like, oh, just give me a sec. I'm just going to go to this phone call. And I came back and I just stood like really close to my boss grinning. And he was like, what? What have you done? And I was like, I got a job. I'm not Crystal. He's like, what? Are you taking me with me? You're taking me with you, right? And I was like, you have your own business to run. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, how, did, how did you get that job? Um, so I did work experience for the London 2012 Olympics. Oh, wow. And the woman that I worked for doing that work experience remembered me and rung me for Dark Crystal, which was incredible. Oh, so I hadn't seen so her cool. for years. And the fact that she thought of me was so good. And wow. she's absolutely incredible. She's all the work she does is amazing. She's worked on every film I've ever seen. I swear, every time I hear about her, I'm like, oh, she's doing incredibly again. Fantastic. That's cool. So it was so cool for her to think of me. Very cool. So when you are receiving designs, what do you prefer a costume designer to give to you? Do you like it with as much information as as it can have and then just being open to your creative liberties? Or do you like it to be a little bit more like, I want to know like just the essentials of what you need for the costume and then let me bring the rest to life. So for people who are looking at being a costume designer, I think this is a helpful conversation to know how to work with someone who's constructing the actual costumes, what do you prefer? What is the dynamic that you like to play in? It depends for me. It depends who it is. Like if it's someone I've worked with before and I know what they're going for, I enjoy the creative bits and I enjoy getting to do little bits here and there. If it's someone new, honestly, I would rather they just say, this is exactly what I want because everyone's got their biases. Everyone knows what they want and designers really know what they want because that's their entire trade is they have an idea for the look of everything. And it always really worries me when a new designer, like, or new to me, like not new designer, but like new to me says, oh, just, just work with it. I'm sure you know what you're doing. And my brain's just like, nope, nope, don't want that. Tell me what you want. I'm happy to do anything, but I don't want creative control because if I do it wrong, you're not going to like it. So it's, it's very dependent. I always think it's good to give a lot of information. And some of the designs I work for like to send me a little mood board with it as well. Yeah. So they'll say, this is what I want, but this is kind of, this is the look of the whole show. So this is what we're trying to work towards. Yeah, that's helpful. Because again, like, you know, a designer's not just doing one costume. They're normally doing the entire thing. So they right. have a very clear idea in their brain of like, it's got to be spooky or it's got to be pretty or like it's got to like have this very 80s nostalgia to it. So I always really like to know what else they're doing and what else yeah. they're working on for that show. Yeah. So a franchise that we're working on um, has an accompanying graphic novel. And so as we were doing the character development, um, I was the one to put the mood boards together only because that's the only way I knew how to really express what we were going for. And then after I was doing that, I made a habit of doing that. I found out that that was pretty, pretty like standard as far as like, that's what people who are doing the costuming and for them, it was, it was digital costuming, right? Cause they were, you know, writing or drawing out the characters and what they would be wearing in their wardrobes and stuff. Um, that, but that's something that people appreciate and people like, and, and I had no idea at the time. It was just the only way I knew how to express what we were we were going for so it's cool to know that that you prefer that as well I do I love it I love like having any idea of what's going on because so often like I'm working in a workshop I'm just asked to make one dress for a bigger thing and I don't get to see any of the creative process I don't get to know like what else is being made they might ring me and say hi I want you to make this one costume and then they ring 20 other people to make 20 different costumes so mm -hmm. it's nice to like feel like I'm part of it and get that kind of coherent thing 
And I love a digital design. That's cool. That's very exciting. Yeah, it's fun. It was, um, again, it's, it's with a, a graphic novel um, based off of a screenplay that we've developed. And so working with um, artists who who do the, the digital drawing of them um, and, and we would um, pull things from, I mean, everything from Pinterest to real life things that we had and, you know, fabrics that were like, oh my gosh, this character needs this. And, and we're just compiling this whole like data dump for them and, and just putting it into a, um, a presentation mode. And we're just like, here you go. And, and then they can put the things together. And, and so that was really fun. One, one of the things I wanted to know was, do you have a specific, um, whether it's a, a style or aesthetic that you like to you like to construct the most, whether it's um, period pieces or more modern things, you know what? How do you, what is the thing that you prefer to, to to play with? Personally, I love anything weird. Oh I have wow! A bit of a reputation among designer people that I know, where they go, oh god, how are we ever going to create that? Let's ring Harriet. And I That's love so that. Fun. I love being that person that like gets yeah. run for really strange and wonderful things. You know, I've made so many daft things. I had a designer who wanted slippers that looked like sharks once. <laughs> and she's like, I know we can't do this, but I kind of love it. And my brain was already like, well, if we made a shape that was that size for the mouth and we could make teeth out of leather. And I was like, give me 20 minutes. I've got a plan. So I love doing all that kind of thing. That's really cool. So you really are the, the problem solver, as you said. I, I'd like to think so. Yeah. Occasionally I cause more problems, but in general, yes. I love I love working it out and I love getting a 2D image and making it 3D, particularly when it's a weird shape. Mm-hmm. It's just fun to play with and get to do all those like daft things that you can't necessarily, you know, like, period costume, you can teach, you can find books on it and you can learn it. Mm-hmm. Most of the things I make are... I have to make my own pattern. I have to work out what the best way to do it is. I have to find, you know, I spend so many times like going around like B&Q and like workwear kind of shops and being like, oh, this hose pipe would be really useful. Let's try that out. That's funny. So it's a lot of just having fun and doing like stupid things, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Well, and one of my next questions was going to be, what is the aesthetic that's the most challenging? But it sounds like your favorite is the, the most challenging of designs to pull off. Definitely. At the time, not so much. Anyone, any of my friends, and particularly any of my friends who've lived with me, will tell you that I get very stressed and very angry and refuse to talk about it at all. And then as soon as I'm done, I'm like, that was really fun. I wish I could do that again. And my housemates will be sat there plying me with beer, being like, just just keep drinking and shut up. Don't take on any more projects. I need time off. That's funny. Yeah, so she they, they feel the the creative frustration emit from oh, you. Oh, very much so, because I walk around the house going, oh, I hate this. Why do I do this? I need a different job. <laughs> I I feel like I mean, if you're if you do not experience the roller coaster of emotions within your occupation, there's gotta be something wrong, right? Because it's like if you get that frustrated and angry, at least in my opinion, obviously there's exceptions, but if you if that means that you're invested. Like if you're really invested into something and you really are attached to its success and being able to pull it off, you're going to get sad and disappointed and angry and full on rage mode and frustrated and deliriously happy when it all works out. So I, I don't really think that's even a bad thing. When I'm happy and enjoying it, I don't think it's a bad thing. When I'm stressed and tired and like, I'm there going, I need a work-life balance that I do not have. At that point, I do think I'm like, maybe I should work on this a little bit and not be emailing people back at midnight. Actually, I should have a nap right now. That's really funny. 
it's something we like really advocate on our website of, you know, turn your laptop off, be done. But actually doing it in practice, I know is so difficult to do. So I'm constantly telling other people to do it. And then my brain's like, but you don't do this. Do you use a specific um, software or some sort of technique to convey what um, you would be bringing to life in? So, so for example, someone, someone submits to you a design, whether it's, you know, sketched out or it's like, you know, procreate or whatever. What do you do with it from there? Do you start like creating drafts of like how you'd be putting the pieces together? Do you show them like what the patterns would look like? Because in my head, it would be a very risky leap to go from um, a design that someone sketched out as far as like, this is, this is what I really want it to look like. And then you spending all this time and hours and budget on a full on costume and then hearing like, mm, they actually wanted something a little bit different. So what happens in the in-between? So I will start doing the worst sketches you've ever seen in a sketchbook. Got it. <laughs> uh, they make perfect sense to me and make no sense to anyone else. So it's a um, leap of faith. Also, like, Got it. <laughs> It is definitely a leap of faith. I think I've done it long enough that I have a vague idea. So I'll be like, okay, this piece needs to look roughly like this and this pattern should be this. And okay, I need to buy this fabric and this and this. So like, I'll have like time on my own with notes that no one will ever see. Mm -hmm. um, and then really I'll make a, a toile, just like a mock-up. So you'll make it out of cheap fabric, like a calico and you'll get the oh, basic okay. shape. Mm -hmm. And then I can show the designer that shape and say, what do you think of this? Do you like where these seams sit? Perhaps we can move this or this. And they sometimes I'll just be like, yeah, that's great. Do it. Sometimes I'll say, oh, this is lovely, but the waist needs to be an inch higher. Or actually, can we make those sleeves bigger? And at that point, you can, I mean, the great thing about working in Calico is you can just get a marker pen out and draw on it, which is lovely. So I can just be like, oh, just draw that bit in. Or I can like change one sleeve and say, do you prefer this sleeve to the old sleeve? So at that point, they've got a bit of control over the shape and how they like it. And then from there, I can start making up the real thing. With a fairly confident knowledge that the designer yeah. likes what the direction that is going. Now you're saying the word calico. Calico, yes, it's like calico. a type of cotton fabric. It's oh. a, a canvas, so it's just it's like quite a creamy kind of color. You can mm -hmm. normally get it for a, like a couple of pounds a meter, so it's nice and cheap to run with, and it doesn't have any stretch in it, so it's just lovely for sewing up quickly. And yeah, like I said, you can draw on it, which is great. I'm Got a big it. one for giving a designer a marker pen and saying, go on then, what do you want? <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's cool. That Yeah, that sounds like a pretty um, effective effective way to do it. And I, I never heard of that before. It's really useful because designers, designers think in 3D, but tend to give you designs in 2D. Mm -hmm. Unless they are particularly good 3D artists and it takes forever, so they normally don't want to do it. You know, they draw a 2D drawing and say, this is what I want. And if you get a designer that's good, they'll give you a back view as well, which is lovely. Uh, but what they won't think about, well, sometimes, not all designers, but some designers don't think about how that logically works. So they might do a dress which is beautifully structured in the front, you know, looks like a nice corset front, nice drop neck on it, all that kind of thing. And then they'll make it entirely backless. And like, well, that is absolutely lovely. But where are you getting that structure in the front from if there's no back to it? You know, if you want it to look like a corset, we're going to have to lace a corset up. Right. So when you can give them a 3D, like a mock-up version of that, they can go, oh, I can see how that works. And then you give them a pen and they're like, well, what if we change this? What if we add that? Like the front view is more important than the back view. So let's change this bit. It means that you can find 
a sort of shared language, I think, and then work with it from there. Yeah, that's very cool. But again, it, it depends on the designer and how they like to work. And plenty of them have making experience. So I'm not saying that all designers have no idea what they're doing. It's definitely right. not where I'm going. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, but that, that's very cool, though. And um, And I've wondered how that dynamic works between someone who is really more in that design mode of like, I, I want something to look like this and have this feeling and stuff where that, um, I guess, reality comes in. And it sounds like a lot of it really does come in when the costume constructor comes into play. Like that's, that's when we start looking at the realities of, as you said, you know, like, where are you getting the structure from if it's, if it doesn't come from here? And, and, and that's, that's, um, that's something that I've been curious about. And so it sounds like that's, that's exactly where it comes in is that, that duality between designer and and costume constructor and, and playing, as you said, with that shared language that you now have. Definitely. Some designers, they're from a making background or they understand it very well or they've just been doing it long enough that obviously they get it. And they can probably work with any maker and just say, this is what I want, this is what I expect. And in theory, if you're a maker and you make to what the designer wants, it can be anyone. But yeah, quite a lot of designers prefer to have their own making team and then you know, you've got that shared language and you're like, you remember that dress we made three years ago for so-and-so? How about we do that again, but shorten it? So you've got that kind of background and that history. And I think I find a, a lot of designers I work with, I tend to work with again, because we work around that and we work out what we want. And then we can find the best way to discuss that with each other afterwards and get get what the designer wants. Because really that's the job as a maker. You are just enacting the designer's vision and making them happy. So I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's very cool. So talk to me about the Wardrobe Chronicles. One of the articles that I read underneath that was um, the whole concept of how do you charge for what you do? So I'd love to hear a little bit about that because that is, I think, across the board, no matter what occupation you have, whether you're you know, a painter or a business owner or you know, you have some sort of role in a film set, that is a question that rings in so many people's heads, you know, like, how, how do I make sure I'm charging fairly to compensate myself, but I'm also still remaining competitive within the marketplace and making sure that I don't accidentally gouge people. I don't want to undercharge. I don't want to overcharge. It's this big, overwhelming topic. And I love the way that you've break, you've broken it down um, and shared your experience with how you've gone on your, you know, for lack of better terms, your charging journey, you know, as you've grown in your career. So I'd love to hear about that. Well, the Water of Chronicles was completely born from me and a friend of mine who is a designer who will listen to this and tell me off for all the things I said about designers. <laughs> uh, it was completely born from me and her being very frustrated with our industry in general. Hmm. We, in general, costume are very overlooked. We are normally some of the least paid in any theatre or any film. We are seen as girls who do sewing, which my nana could probably do. Or, oh, you just hand people their coats. Like, no one really seems to understand what we do. And what we do is incredibly skilled. We have degrees doing this. We have worked in this for many years. We think about things that other people haven't thought about. And we are so often completely overlooked. And people, yeah, they, they haven't heard of our job role. They don't know what we do. And they assume that we just kind of faff around and don't really do very much. So really, we wanted to make ourselves more well-known and more present and explain to people that what we do matters and that we have our we have a right to be there and our place in that room as much as anybody else does. Yeah. And I think one of the things that really like, um, like helps with that image of costume people not knowing what to do is that our education 
is very good in how to make costumes or how to be a standby or how to be backstage. Mm -hmm. But our education is terrible in the idea of what do you charge? How do you invoice? Yeah. Telling people that you're worth more, being able to walk into a room and know what your role is. And that is something we just, we, no one discusses and nobody talks about it within the industry. That article that you mentioned, the what do I charge article, I put out Facebook posts, Instagram posts, and I said, I want to talk about what we're earning. Who is willing to discuss their salary with me in terms of actual hard numbers? And in general, we get quite a lot of feedback for our website, which is incredible, but nobody answered. Nobody wanted oh, to tell really? me what money they made at all. Oh. It's it's so ingrained. That's not a good people, sign. <laughs> that says it's, it's not too a low. good sign at all. And the people, you know, friends of mine that I do talk to, they always start with, oh, Harry, you're going to hate me because I'm undercharging for this job. Because they know that I'm so adamant that we should be getting paid more. Yeah. So it's a real problem and it's something people don't discuss. So I wrote that article to say, well, here is what it is. In actual numbers, this is the money I make and this is the money that I think you should be trying to get. And if you disagree with me, tell me. Tell me that I'm doing it wrong because I want to have this discussion. And I want to open this up for other people. And actually, a lot of people said they liked the article, but no one said, oh, you should be charging less or you should be charging more. No one really wanted to actually put a number on it or a definite thing mm -hmm. but I think for lighting and for sound they get paid a lot more than we do like mostly I used to know Lampy who he at the time was making two and a half times my day rate wow. and he was like oh I don't get out of bed for less than 250 pounds a day I don't bother why why would I no one else will take that job Whereas in costume, I get offered £100 a day and I say, no, thank you. I don't want that job. And somebody else will take it because we don't have a strong union and we don't have a collective place to sit and discuss this. So a student will say, oh, well, it's paid. I'll take it. Mm -hmm. And they won't necessarily think, oh, but that devalues my industry. Yeah, it makes total sense. And again, I think, I mean, I've learned so much in this interview already. Um, costuming has always been really fascinating to me because... I love period pieces. That's what I write. I write in period drama genre. And the costumes have always been something that have intrigued me because um, especially with, with television and with film as how I've experienced it, so much detail goes into those things. I mean, everything from like little handkerchiefs to where the laces plays to um, buttons on cuffs. I mean, just there's, there are such intricate designs and I would have never thought that as a whole, the costuming industry is kind of getting gouged. Like I would have never, I've always put the costumes on such a pedestal that growing up, I would have never assumed that there was such um, an issue with the way the rates are, are put out there and, and people not getting paid fairly based off of their work. And again, I mean, the time it takes to put these pieces together, whether you're designing them or constructing them just it's like so much of your life goes into this dress that can end up being worn, as you said, for 20 minutes on, on screen and then may not ever be touched again. And it, it's insane. I had no idea that this was such an issue. What's always really annoyed me is that because camera, because lighting, because sound are very technical things and not to make a big issue of it, but they're also mostly male dominated industries where they mm -hmm. tell you that they're very good at what they do. They're made to believe that the camera angle has to be just right. And it does, absolutely. You know, you can't have a film without a camera. But 
when a normal person, someone who doesn't work in our industry, a muggle, as my friends would call them, um, <laughs> when they when they watch a film, they're not going to notice that the camera angle is slightly off. They are going to notice if the costume is wrong. Mm-hmm. But because what we do isn't done with big technical things, because we don't have a big lighting van that we drive in in, or we don't have you know, cameras that are worth thousands upon thousands of pounds, we walk in looking mostly like a group of girls with sewing machines, as a general rule, who they go, oh, well, we could have bought that top from Primark, or, well, yeah, but we could just hire that costume. Why do we need to get, why do we need to pay to make it? And the all the stuff that goes into that is done before you see it on set. So we are so often devalued. And there, there are many reasons why, but I think that is one of the big things is that people don't see sewing as a skill and they don't see costume as an integral part, even though I think it's so front facing on camera that I it agree. absolutely should be for anything. Yeah. I mean, I think the the simplest way to, at least in my opinion, the simplest way to convey its importance is look at how little kids in Halloween costumes come to be. Like they're, they're taking the costumes that their favorite characters have worn on, on screen and are, you know, they had their little kid version of it. And it's like, that's clearly such a reflection on how important it is to the character and to the franchise or into you know, the TV series or whatever. So much so that there's, I mean, LARPing and, you know, like live action role-playing based off of characters and conventions, like the costume, I think is such in as you said, a very integral part of the whole experience. It's how actors like finally like step in that. It's like that last piece of, you know, they're, they're in hair and makeup, they're getting everything done. They're thinking about their lines they're kind of getting into that mode of whatever that character is feeling that day for the scene. And that's like the last step. Like they, they put on the, the costume and then they're that character. So it's, it's mind boggling to me that it's such an overlooked position on set. Again, I'm, I'm just shocked at how much of an issue this is because to me, that's like such an obvious feature <laughs> that like you need these things. Um, you need the costumes to really bring everything together to make the actor fully into the character to all the way to, you know, little kids getting to emulate the characters that they so admire. Absolutely. I wish everyone thought like this, because this is exactly where I'm at. But trying to explain that to people who don't see it is very difficult, which is why we started doing this website and why we've written so many articles on it now. We talk to so many people about this. It's just trying to get that word out there and that belief. So you're you're getting to go out there and educate um, the industry on on how to interact with with costume right? Like you're, you're, you're informing people. Yeah. So, so what are the things that you're doing right now underneath that brand to bring more awareness into, um, how to play in this dynamic of costume, how to charge for it, how you launch your career in it, because you have so much information on the website. It's just, it's so cool. Um, and I want listeners to be able to go to it as a resource if they're interested in either hiring um, costume department or being a part of a costume department and, and getting to learn more about the industry as a whole. I would love for that for more people to come look. Come and join. We have many resources that are mostly free and it would be really nice to start this conversation with as many people as we can. Yeah, I would yeah. really like that. So what are some of the things that people can expect to um, receive with the, the things that you're talking about, you know, information-wise, education-wise? So we mostly 
um, structure our articles to people who are in the costume industry or who want to be in the costume industry. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about what we do and things like, yeah, how to charge, how to be a freelancer. Uh, We also have a lot of articles on just past experiences, which is really a learn from my mistakes kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Both me and Rachel, who run the thing, we've done so many gigs that were badly paid, that were small jobs, where we were running around doing three jobs at once, which afterwards we've gone, as grown-ups, we would not have taken that job on. What were we thinking? Like, allowing that to happen to us. How, like... I'm so embarrassed that I let that happen and that I let someone treat me like that. And the best way we could think of to stop other people getting treated like that is just to tell people and be so brutally at times honest and say, this is what happened to me. Understand that these are the steps that happened to get me to this point. Don't let yourself get to that point, please. So that is a big part of it. But we've also got our resources on... Uh, We're trying to create a theatre touring database at the moment. So if you travel to any theatre in the UK, hopefully, eventually, you can look up that theatre on our website and see, oh, there's a sewing shop nearby. There's a local cobblers, which are good. Oh, wow. You know, all this local information that you don't normally have. So we're really trying to gear it towards people who are already in the industry who maybe don't need that advice, but do want help with other things. But we have that. We've got 101 ideas, though. There's going to be so many different things behind we're done, I swear. <laughs> That's really cool. And are you, you're starting up the webinars? Yes, we've run a few webinars on different things. We tend to do whatever people want us to teach them. So we've done, I've taught one on how to do hand sewing. I've taught wow. one on how to go from theater to film if you're in theater and oh you want to watch so cool. TV. Yeah, it was it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. And we got really good questions and feedback. We're just in the midst now. We're doing a five part course on the history of clothing and fashion and costume. So we're doing 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. So we've done our 20s and 30s ones, which went down so well. So on Monday we record for our next one. Um, And we have, you know, people can come and sign up. We record all of them. So if anyone wants to see any of the old ones, we're happy to sell, you know, like posthumous tickets so that people can see it and appreciate it we've got one coming up we've been talking to an accountancy firm about how to do your taxes as a freelancer wow. what you can claim for and what you can't we're going to do one that is so impressive oh i swear anything anyone wants to know the good thing is rachel and i have been in this industry for 10 years each we know so many people we can put you in contact with anyone if anyone has a costume question where they're like i'd love to learn to do this or how do you get into that I can almost guarantee I can find the person that can answer that question. Yeah, that's really amazing. So, so yeah, so we'll have um, those those links down in uh, the episode description so that if people want to learn more about you and what you do, um, jump on the webinars, get involved with the articles and hear more about the resources that you have to offer, they'll be able to find all that information down in the episode description. Um, that is awesome. So as we're wrapping up, I want to ask you a couple more questions. So the first one is in life right now, in your very busy schedule, what are you learning? I am currently learning how to advertise my work and our website better. I am learning how to use Instagram and Facebook and all those things which I've always taken for granted. I'm trying to actually sell things on them now in a, not in a product placement kind of way, but try to sell our ideas and trying to reach more people. So that is my current learning goal is to learn how to do that better. 
I love that. Yeah, that's a great goal. I mean, and you're just speaking to my business side of me. So I'm like, I love that. So mm-hmm. we can have a conversation about that after, after the recording. Um, that's so cool. That's a great thing to be learning. Um, I'm a big advocate for that. You know, you got to learn how to market yourself and pitch your products and ideas because that's how you're going to be able to, to make even more of a successful for successful name for yourself, you know, get the brand out there. And and for you, there's a, there's that awareness attached as well, because you you actually have a a bigger mission too that what you're working on than just, you know, a, a career you've got, you've got a real, you know, purpose behind you, which I just think is so cool. So then I am a big believer in the process of unlearning is just as important as learning. So what is something they're unlearning right now in life? I think something I'm trying to unlearn at the moment, and it comes across in a lot of our articles, is that I don't have to be liked by everyone. I always had this idea when I was younger that if people liked me, everything would work and I'd be respected in my job and people would just get on with me and it'd be perfect. And definitely what I've realized is I want to be respected in my work. Mm. And if people like me for that, that is great. But if I need to be hard on someone and say, this is how it is and stand up for myself, then that is completely okay to do. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a lot to unlearn all that, but that is what I'm yeah. trying to do. That's great. Yeah. That's a, that's a great thing to be unlearning. I think I, I definitely resonate with, with that. I like to be liked. <laughs> I don't like to be unliked. I think for me, uh, it really comes down to, I don't like to be misunderstood. I would rather somebody be annoyed with me and then um, at least address it with me, I guess, than, than to assume something or um, come to some sort of conclusion that I don't get to clarify with them. I'd rather them not like me for um, something that is actually accurate about me, right? Than, than not liking me for something that they just didn't understand that we could have cleared up. And that's something that I've just recently uh, discovered that I'm in the process of unlearning. Um, I ask you know, this question to people every single week and multiple times a week. And that was something that popped up for me. I was like, oh, that's actually something that I'm unlearning is, is that it's okay if people misunderstand me, which drives me crazy. And there's a little bit of an OCD component to that too. Cause I'm like, I, I want to fix that. That's like a like a crazy thing for me. Um, so great lesson to be unlearning. I know a lot of people can can resonate with that. I'm sure a lot of people relate to it. It's it's nice to be liked. Um, and I do agree with you that there is a lot more value in being respected, especially in in your career, where yeah, there there's a there's some some male dominant roles going on in the film industry and and that can make it a little bit more challenging. And so um I, I like the the uh, the value placed more on respect and that's something that you're you're learning to do more of I, th- I think that's great well trying at least we'll see yes. how well it actually works <laughs> yeah it's a journey it's a process that's awesome so um how can people actually connect with you and the wardrobe chronicles if they want to learn more we have our website uh the wardrobechronicles.com we are on instagram we are on twitter we are on facebook it is honestly only two of us that run this so dm us comment send us an email. We are happy to chat. That's and awesome. if anyone wants to see my work and me professionally, I am on Instagram at the endless workshop. That's very cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was full of such great tips and insights. And I mean, I've said multiple times, I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Like I've never thought about that. So I've learned so much from this episode. Um, so I'm so grateful for you being here. I love what you're doing. I love what you stand for. Um, I am so supportive of, of what 
you're working on and, and bringing awareness to this issue that's within the film industry that we love so much and trying to make the world a better place and the set a better place through it. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. This has been so valuable and I'm just so excited for people to hear this. Thank you for having me. This has been my first ever podcast interview. So it's been oh great. My gosh. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Well, well, good. I hope it was a good one. I hope it set a, a precedent and a standard for you. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Anyone else want to be on the podcast? Give me a shout. <laughs> yeah, there you go. As we come to a close, I want to go over our Remember Research and Challenge for the week. Remember, costumes are the final element that make a character real. They are the symbol that people literally buy into and wear to emulate their heroes. Therefore, it's incredibly important to choose the right team to work with to make your designs a reality. Only choose people who truly get and appreciate your vision. Research. To bring your costuming to the next level for your storytelling projects, compare your designs and explore their functionality. If they will be used on stage, is there a practical place for a mic pack? If you have a design for screen, are there features that will potentially set you up for continuity errors? The more thorough your design, the more efficient the construction process will be and challenge. It's important to know your worth as a creative and stand by it. This honors you, the people you collaborate with, and the projects you take on. So take some time and calculate your typical cost for a project, including base materials, time, extra resources, equipment rentals, etc. Then add on an additional amount that you would like to receive for your services. If that total comes out to a number that feels great to you, stick to it. If not, recalculate and adjust as needed. Thank you so much for tuning in. My goal for this podcast is to empower you to make your designs a reality and to highlight an issue in the film industry that we all can actively address with a simple shift in budgeting for a film. To stay connected, go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Life Camera Action Show and let me know how this helped you. If you have any questions or feedback and if you'd like to explore how you can grow your creative brand, then go ahead and message me there or schedule some time at victoriaroof.com. And as always, as you build your empire, just remember, you can lead a life of fear or you can lead a life of love. So allow every decision you make to be made with love. Thank you so much for joining me this season. And I can't wait to see you for Life Camera Action Season 3 in 2022.